Still shaven? Yeah, I actually just shaved in preparation for this. Gotta look fresh for the pod. Mm-hmm. Can you say I hi to my... our guest? Oh, hi, guest. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> she's here, but she's not on video. That's cool. And that's a, yeah. Yeah. That's okay. I just okay. I don't know if Drew quite gets that concept, so I'm explaining it to him right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Great. So, how's the weather down in Old San Juan? Perfect. Yeah, always perfect. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. How long have you been living there? Uh, since July 2019. Okay, nice. Mostly in the uh, pandemic. Eh, but yeah, but not not great. <laughs> yeah, I'm not great. But I oh, I'm try. sure it's better than you think it is, or you say it is. <laughs> People yeah. always tend to play down their language. Well, no, women tend to play down their language capabilities. Men tend to, I mean, not to Exaggerate generalize them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not to generalize grossly. But I lived in China for five years, and um, it was you'd always meet men who thought their Chinese was incredible, and it was really just embarrassing. Uh, I don't think I exaggerate my abilities in in French. I usually, if anything, I I downplay them just to avoid the awkwardness of having to speak the language I'm not very good at. Yeah, but maybe maybe that's true. I that men exaggerate their fluency. Well, I, Drew, you're always an exception. When I generally yeah. you're always an exception. I want you to know that. I mean, I, I worry that sometimes I do exaggerate my abilities in, in French, but I don't. I haven't even spoken French in so long that. Now I would be a total child. May we? Yeah. I, mean, I think um, there's a special type of male expat in China who would have middling Chinese, but insist that all Chinese people speak <laughs> Chinese with him, even when their English was like excellent. Like uh, someone who studied at like Harvard or whatever. Right. And he has like flawless English. But this guy's like fucking intent on getting that Chinese person to speak Chinese with him. And they're just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> it's, um, I don't know. Do you ever feel... Like I was a journalist uh, when I was in China and I always felt like I wasn't really in the loop as what was happening in like American or like New York media. Like I've never lived in New York in my life. And I wondered like, am I missing out on something or is this like the best decision I've ever made? And (laughs) it usually tilted more toward the latter. But I'm wondering like what, like how has living not, I guess in New York, like impacted your writing? Well, I mean, I spent like my whole life in New York. So before I moved here, so I feel like it's very just ingrained with me. And so uh, I don't, uh, I don't know. I I don't, I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything because I understand it so much. Um, And so, um, I mean, I miss going to New York (laughs) regularly. I didn't move. I moved here thinking I wouldn't be so cut off, but um, because it's only like a four hour flight and there are like a million flights, obviously, because the diaspora is concentrated in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, it's been uh, interesting. Um, I don't know. I can't, (laughs) I feel like I've been here so much during the pandemic that everything is weird that I can't really comprehend the differences in my life because it's just a novel situation that I I never anticipated. Yeah. (laughs) So hopefully, (laughs) yeah, hopefully in a year I'll understand the differences. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But not yet. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so I guess we should start talking about our man. So yes. First of all, I'm curious how Alicia, tell us your capital story. How did you get converted to um <laughs> because you're not like a literary critic, although you've been you've been in I, you know journalistic circles. 
but you're right. a food writer in case none of our listeners know that, which they should, um, <laughs> you're like one of the top three food writers on Substack. Mm-hmm. You have a huge following. You write about food from like, I guess you would say like a left and like international perspective. I, um, I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is the only way to write about it, honestly. I mean, again, like having lived in China, it's like just the provincialism of so much American writing is like psychotic and will drive you insane. No, it, it's true. I, I'm glad to have that perspective from outside now. Um, yeah. I mean, I've always tried to kind of be bigger in my thoughts than than the United States and New York. But now, obviously, living in a colony, um, getting a perspective of more from Latin America, you know, it's it's a whole different ballgame for sure. So what were you I'm curious before you you cracked the spine of my struggle, (laughs) have any like conceptions or like prior, you know, thoughts or about about Carl Uva? Yeah. So I actually, you know, majored in English like many people and thought I was going to be a literary critic and eventually a novelist. Like I thought that was going to be my life. And then food just kind of took over. Um, But so I've always been interested in literature. I've always been reading about literature. And so when the novels start started to be translated into English, I was aware of the kind of kerfuffle, I guess, around them and, you know, how people were presenting it. And now that I've actually read the first two books and I'm waiting for Archipelago to send me the third, I (laughs) am like, I just think it was such an American response, the way the literary press in the U.S. responded to the novels. Like it was just so provincial. It was so provincial and so like weird and just like, can you believe it? This guy talks about his life. Like, why would you do that? Like, I don't know. Heaven forbid someone write about their life. And I don't know. It was so weird. So the reason I got into them, which I started reading them, you know, when the pandemic began. um, And I don't, I honestly can't recall what made me order the first book. I think I was just like, you know what? It's time for me to see what this is about for whatever reason. Um, And now when? If not, yeah, exactly. And so now I'm like- yeah, freaking like super, super obsessed. Like I tore, <laughs> I tore through the first one. The second one, I took a big, I took a big break in the middle because I'm also, I have a book deadline in July. And so I have been, Ooh. I have to like read a lot of very boring things about like the history of vegetarianism and like sure. the, the impacts of capitalism on climate change. And like, yeah, yeah. like but these are not bo- on having a book deal though. That's oh, thank cool. you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have to read a lot for that. And so I took a big break from in this middle of the second book, but when I got back to it, mm-hmm. I get again, like tore through the end of it. Um, and yeah, just really love it I relate <laughs> I, yeah. I I feel seen by the yeah. by this um it's been a weird thing because I never actually had an interest in Scandinavia at all like ever in my yeah. I never like thought of Scandinavia at all I never thought about yeah. it and so um and obviously I prefer hot weather that's why I live in Puerto Rico but um Absolutely. you know I in the pandemic have gotten into like all this Scandinavian stuff like I've watched all yeah. the <laughs> The, all the TV shows on Netflix, oh, yes. like all Borgen. the procedurals. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Oh, Borgen, I Borgen's die for amazing. Borgen. Yes, incredible. And, yeah, and Rita, Home for Christmas, the Norwegian one. Um, so uh, yeah, I've just been, and then reading these novels, and like for whatever reason, there's like some latent interest in Nordic culture that has been awakened in me in the pandemic. Yeah. And so, and so the, 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 my struggle thing is just part of that, but it is the most important and um, right. my favorite part of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 
I mean, it's a it's a truly a Nordic epic. I mean, right. you could even say saga. Right. Um, although I'm sure that's inc- intensely overused in criticism. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's um, yeah, I like how you said you feel seen in it because I do too, right? Yeah. And I'm also an American white lady, but this like Gen X Norwegian guys like personal saga is like so compelling to me. And yes. I'm like, I find myself like highlighting like passages. I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, Carl Uva, yeah, tell it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So before we get into the food passages, are there any like passages just in general that like really stuck out to you? For example, we discussed um, with our last guest, the beer on the hill saga, the famous ah. getting the beer to the New Year's Eve party. Right, right. Um, still there. We're still not over it. I'm still <laughs> We're still not over it. it. <laughs> um, for me, I think it was the description of the first baby being born. Um, mm. Oh, you know what? Christian said that too. But, um, right. But also, I there was a paragraph he wrote that was quoting his then wife, um, where she said she was angry with him because he was the first person who made her think she would be a mother. And then he tried to take it away at one point um, when they had a fight. And that, I don't, I mean, as a, you know, I'm 35. Like, I think that was a really, that really like hit me. And I think it was the first time in the novel, like from what I've read that he was really trying to understand, um, you know, someone else's perspective, like very, very, he was really, really trying in that time to understand. and I, you know, I, that like made me cry that part. Um, so it wasn't even just like the very graphic descriptions of, of the birth and everything, but like also everything yeah. leading up to that was, was really heavy for me. And I liked it a lot. Also stuff about doing interviews and like hating yourself afterwards. Like after I get <laughs> off of this call, I'm going to hate myself. Like, um, no, please yeah. no, no, it's just, it is the matter of course. And like, because I've like started to do more interviews lately, like I'm, I'm yeah. excited to do this one. Cause it's not about like, hi, yeah. Alicia, like tell us how to fix restaurants. Um, yeah. but, so this is a, a break from that. Um, yeah, but absolutely. Yeah. So when I do them, I'm like, I, yeah, I get off and I'm just like, ugh. like, like he says, I have a sense that I betrayed myself, you know? And so, yeah. and like doing interviews with journalists and like letting yourself be photographed and all this, like doing all this silly, yeah. silly stuff that has nothing to do with writing, but like that you have to do, like, I, I really enjoy the, like that aspect of the, of the novels too, because that, that's really where I feel very seen. <laughs> absolutely i yeah. mean first of all don't worry i'm going to edit this to make you sound as smart as possible oh great thank you <laughs> um, always i always edit it for myself and then i make drew sound as dumb as possible no, <laughs> um, he's more intelligent in that in the actual recording than that's than true you you've been you've been absolutely changed in the <laughs> that's um, fine that's fair but i do think it's interesting what you say about kanausgar's public persona because like just thinking about the the photographs of him that are out there, they're so like hammy and over yes. the top. Like that's why we love I it. Though. I almost wonder if that's on purpose. If he was like, "Fuck it," like there's you're not gonna get like an authentic photo of me. Why not just go full on like male genius writer, cigarette right. smoking? Um, <laughs> and, and I think yeah. yeah. I think those pictures kind of turned me off from reading the books too. Cause, yes. <laughs> because you don't think that he's going to criticize himself or not take himself yeah. seriously. But then you read the books and you're like, holy shit, this guy like really does not take himself seriously. Like he's self-loathing like everyone else, yeah. even though he is this like, you know, 
male genius um, who's photographed looking so cool at the time. And so that, yeah, it, the, so much of the press around the books made the book seem absolutely awful. Um, <laughs> and, and those pictures were definitely a huge part of it. So yeah, definitely being wary of that kind of thing <laughs> when for yeah. myself, like, you know, it's a, it's a good lesson, I guess. I mean, why not just smoke the cigarette in your publicity photos? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't smoke. I'd look ridiculous. So. <laughs> um, I, I, took, I took up smoking just so that one day I would be photographed for a book. With cigarettes. <laughs> Every day I smoke in hopes of that, that picture. <laughs> yeah. Just so it won't be a prop on in the. Yeah, exactly. When you uh, get that jacket photo. Yeah, um, yeah it's funny. It's. Yeah, you talking about the initial reception. This is something Drew and I have talked about on the pod before. Is just the incredible narrow-mindedness of Americans and being like, there's absolutely no way that this, like, exploration of this guy's, um, six-volume exploration of this guy's uh, life can be anything other than complete narcissism. Right. Like, it just says so much about us and how, like provincial and narcissistic our culture is we're like this can absolutely like illuminate absolutely nothing other than this Norwegian man's personal experience you know growing up in Norway and Sweden it's like yeah it's frustrating I think that also extended into the discussion of the the kind of the style or the writing itself because I remember thinking that these books were sort of like insurmountably difficult or unapproachable but as soon as yeah. I started reading it, I was I was immediately intrigued and I found the writing to be, you know, quite readable and engaging, which was surprising to me. Yeah, they yeah. really made it out to be a nightmare. And it, yeah, and it's not I don't if for me, it feels like I think I I was intimidated, like by the idea of Nick Cave until I actually listened to Nick Cave. And then I wasn't <laughs> like it's a very similar trajectory right. for me of like everyone made this seem really scary and like difficult, but it's actually not. Yeah. That's a good comparison. <laughs> Maybe that'll be our outro music today. Do some Nick Cave. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm still recovering. I have bron- I have, think I have bronchitis. Oh no, I'm sorry. No. It gives me like a little literary flair. Like, <laughs> like a consumptive. Yes, like a consumptive. Um, so. So yeah, I just like so I the reason I reached out to you is because a friend of mine sent me a tweet you had tweeted about <laughs> about um Kanausgaard's uh extremely idiosyncratic approach to food and cooking. Right. Because as you point out, uh this man says he couldn't care less about food. He literally I think the passage is I couldn't give a rat's ass about food. Although right. that could have been the translators, I mean, using that idiom. But um, and yet book two, I would say probably 20 to 30 percent of book two is about him making lobster. elaborate. Yeah, <laughs> like very elaborate dinner parties. Yeah, extremely elaborate dinner parties. Um, and I was just wondering, like, yeah, how do we account for that seeming paradox? Like, can do you have any insight into Canals Guard? Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, approach to this? I mean, I. I don't have a special insight. It's interesting to me because as a food writer, my ideas of like of how Scandinavians approached food was like really intensely, you know, like because there was I think at the same time that um, these books were coming out in English, there was also this big moment of the new Nordic cuisine. Oh, um, tell us more about that. In 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 food, like everyone was obsessed with like Rene Redzepi from Noma in Copenhagen. 
and like okay, um, and Marcus Nielsen from Favicon and like this idea of like hyper seasonal, like going into the forest and like um, okay. preserve tons of preserves and like just kind of taking taking like a new like chefy approach to traditional um, Nordic foods. And so that was like huge, huge, huge. And so when I started to like get into my Scandinavian phase in the pandemic, I'm like, yeah. I've been wondering like, where is that in it? Because I'll watch like in Borgen, it took until like the last season for food to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yes, I watched that, that episode about the, the pork, about the pigs. Yeah. And yes, then, the yeah. And so it other shows too, it's like food is not really a significant aspect of daily life in the TV shows. And then you come to my struggle and it's like, this guy telling you how much he doesn't care about food, but also describing food and food shopping in like very intense detail and like um, hiding in the kitchen, like being a good enough cook that he is allowed to cook the dinner parties and hide in the kitchen. I'm like, this can't be like nothing to you. This can't be nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And so I just, I'm really intrigued by this like seeming like dissonance between how he says that it's like a stupid thing but then he's also super impressed with women who are good cooks like his his ex-wife's mother like describes in intense detail what a great (laughs) cook she is and like how she has so much in the freezer and she did all the food for the christening and it was wonderful and like and like has a real empathy for her as someone who wants to do a good job in the kitchen um, and that's what's really interesting to me is that that he and I think this might be a lot of people, honestly, like because everyone eats, of course, and everyone, you know, likes to take pleasure in food. But then people will also be like, but if, uh, you know, screw it, I don't really care about food like that's super elitist to care about that. Like, I'm never going to yeah. like care what brand of spaghetti I buy, whatever, whatever. Like, it's really all of that is stupid. But at the same time, they really want to have pleasure in their meals and really take pleasure in their meals. So I think maybe, and I'm only realizing this as I speak about it, like maybe he is kind of enacting a very like every man approach to food and it's actually not that, yeah, (laughs) not that deep, but (laughs) I, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Something, I mean, Drew and I talk a lot about on this pod is, is he an underground man or an every man? Right. And I think most of the time the balance comes out in favor of every man. Yes. And he's sure. really quite conventional in a lot of ways. Um, you know, he's just like a guy who likes to watch soccer on TV <laughs> and drink beer. Yeah. And drink beer. And um, you know, be horny for the kids. Right. Um, rhythm time teacher at the library. <laughs> um and it's it's really, yeah, almost kind of endearing or something. Right. Um, I actually want to read. I sent you guys that passage with um, <clears throat> a couple of passages I, I highlighted um, about his first wife and food. Right. First wife's mother. Let me find. Okay. So this is from book one. Like later in book one, this is like the lead up to cleaning out the father's house, of course, um, when he's still married to his first wife and he's maybe in his late 20s or something. Mm-hmm. Um. He says, uh, Tonya's mother, I don't know how you pronounce her name. Tonja? Tonya? Either. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Tonya's mother was a fantastic cook. Meals in her house were an experience if you were the foodie type. I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't give a rat's ass about food. I was just as happy to eat fish fingers as baked halibut, sausages as filet of beef wellington. But Tonya was, her eyes lit up when she started talking about food, and she was a talented cook. 
uh, and she had moved in with someone who regarded meals, home comforts, and closeness as necessary evils. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot there about like um, intimacy, and not to overinterpret, but I wonder if if like a uh, Carl Uva becoming a cook when he's married to Linda kind of reveals how much closer he feels to Linda than to his first wife. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, he talks about the first wife with such like tenderness all the time, but, but without the same obvious, like in like totally off the charts intensity with which he talks about Linda, like just a huge intensity there. And, and that he has to kind of take care of her too. He, he expresses. So that might be why he took over the food role is like, he has to be the you know, the caretaker in that relationship. Whereas in that first one, he wasn't that as involved. He wasn't as intimately like involved. You know, he felt tenderness, but didn't feel the the kind of intensity that he was craving. But it is really interesting because it does suggest that he he finds like the home home life there st- stressful, like and not as I mean, I guess when he was growing up, he was also like his mom wasn't a big cook, didn't really want to have kids kind of that mm-hmm. comes out in the second book and like and obviously his dad was a terror and so the idea that like yeah that hominess was connected to food he yeah he never really had that I guess I mean yeah what did he eat as a child just the toast. Were the toast <laughs> the four slices of toast one with sardines one with clove cheese what are the other ones um I've memorized it at this point tomatoes and sardine sauce or sorry sardines and tomato sauce Clove cheese, regular cheese, and shit, what was the other one? Anyway, it's some nasty thing. And not only that, I realized this reading the passage the second time. They're cold. So dad has stored them in the refrigerator. They're not even freshly spread. They've been (laughs) marinating in the refrigerator and they're taken out and they're served these pieces of cold open-faced sandwiches. I cannot think of a less like tender, loving like dinner. (laughs) The cold, it's like a dead cold fish of a dinner. It's literally a dead cold fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that passage is just nauseating. It's like, it's, and it, it's tor- almost torturous because he goes through each slice, right? He, yeah. He, he goes through a strategy for how to digest each uh, slice. Uh, it's strange. Even there, he has this odd intimacy with the food, even when it's sort of repulsive. But I wonder too if his kind of compulsion to food is like extends from his. Um, commitment to you know the mundane detail and like I kind of believe him that he might not have a hedonic or hedonistic like obsession with food at all he may just have a total utilitarian utilitarian approach but then when it comes to the writing he does have to kind of labor over it because that's where his commitment to these details has to kind of be amplified I'm not sure right No, I think it makes sense. I think it's interesting because when he's in Sweden, he ties the food into his hatred of like the Stockholm middle class. And and, like he really associates that the food and like the kind of Europeanness of the food with their how much he hates them. (laughs) And that is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And that is really interesting to me, obviously, as a food writer, where I'm like, I'm this kind of terrible bourgeois person about food that he would probably hate. And then, but I do, like, I understand it, but I, I, it's still, you know, it hurts me <laughs> the way he writes about, like, uh, is, the, this is literally the most, like, uh, ferocious he gets on any topic throughout this yeah. book. 
Yeah. There, there's nothing that he despises so viciously as the Swedes, not even his father. <laughs> like It's insane. And it's so funny to me because again, I'm like, you know, all these countries seem from afar, like not that different, but then like you, get, <laughs> exactly. you, you dive into it and it's like, holy, they're vicious about each other. Generally, uh, each of these Scandinavian countries. And like, yeah, I, I do t- kind of revel in how much he hates the Swedes and their and their bourgeois tendencies and political correctness and that sort of thing. I find that really interesting, um, probably because I'm from Long Island. So like, <laughs> I'm, I'm maybe more Norwegian in this in this scenario than than <laughs> Swedish and so like I, I I really appreciate it for that but then it's it's interesting how the food comes into it to be this like symbol of their of their terribleness so and in this situation for- New York City is Sweden and Long Island is Norway maybe right right the wasps okay. in New York are, are right. Sweden yeah <laughs> that, that that checks out yeah <laughs> I mean, he was especially upset at the quinoa and hummus at the children's birthday. I mean, because that was like a birthday party. Can we read this passage again? It's such a, it's such a classic. It hits so hard every time. Um, (laughs) This is book two and around page 28. This is at the child's birthday party at which the only food for these like four or five year olds is like quinoa salad and like chickpeas or, or something like that. And Kanavsgaard writes, Oh, they were confusing food with the mind. They thought you could eat your way to being a better human being without understanding that food is one thing and the notions food evokes another. And if you said that, if you said anything of the kind, you were either a reactionary or just Norwegian. In other (laughs) words, 10 years behind. (laughs) I, I like that a lot, actually, because I do think that people who are obsessed with food like as a consumer product have mm-hmm. this this investment in it as something magical that can like kind of mm-hmm. take away their their sins and i mean you in in the um in the email you sent you mentioned this this passage in the context of like veganism which yeah. i'm vegetarian i write a lot about uh vegetarianism and, and veganism and so i of course like have to deal with this um, intersection of, of food, like what food is and the notions food evokes, like that's basically what my job is, is to like deal with those differences. And then, you know, how do we live when, how do we talk about food as something good and, and joyous, but also like destructive when it's also a commodity that people need to survive, you know, like there is no really good way to talk about food because of those things. And so to me, it's really, it, it, it's actually really uh, instructive, I think, to engage with how he writes about food because it's so it's so different from how I do. But it's also like it's true. Like that's he's you know what he's saying is true. That is how a bourgeois person is with food. They think that just like I mean, this manifests differently maybe in New York, like where like young hip media people. I mean, maybe this isn't how they are now. I know <laughs> there's lots of hip people who like go to Lucian, which is like really bad food. Um, but Lucian? there's it's like a restaurant in the East Village on First Avenue. Um, yeah. But there's like also this kind of idea, especially among food people that like, oh, if you find like the best tacos or like the best dumplings, then like you're a really cool with it person. Like you have this mm-hmm. like it's confusing the eating of the food with who you are as a human being and like what that what the food says about who you are. And so it's like virtue signaling via food. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lot of truth in what he says there, even though it hurts me, of course. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I guess I want to know. So you're you more or less are on Canals Guard side in this rather. I mean, if you had to choose one side, it'd be Canals Guard over the uppity Swedes. Of course. Yeah. yeah, I think I am, too. But how do you like so how does one I mean, your overall project is trying to advocate or at least like uh, make veganism and vegetarianism more accessible in that they're objectively better for the planet. I mean, I right. don't think anyone denies that yeah. that <laughs> industrial animal agriculture is hor- horrifying and yeah. just objectively bad for the planet. Um, so how do you like, how do you just theoretically like respond to people who are essentially accusing you of being an uppity sweet at a Sweet. Birthday party? <laughs> I, I mean, it happens a lot. Like people, I think just last week, someone was telling me I was self-righteous and classist because I don't like impossible. I think impossible burgers and like beyond meat are like not a great idea. Like not, <laughs> they're not the solution to the problem necessarily. Um, and so, I mean, and because, and also like, I like, um, I talk about, uh, I, I wrote a piece about natural peanut butter and people always get really upset when I say <laughs> that like, like Skippy and Jif are not great because they have all this like crap added to them and like, yeah. including Tom like, famously yeah, terrible, famously yeah. terrible for the environment for, for humans. Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm used to it. And, uh, but I think that the way I think about it and the way the, I mean, the way I think about food is different from, from how those people are thinking about it, I guess. So like, for me, it doesn't matter because I think that in my writing, I, I hit all the, the notes that I'm supposed to hit in order to not be a self-righteous in classes, you know, like I'm always just on the side of the planet and, and workers and animals and like advocating for a, a planet where people aren't forced, aren't just forced to live for like work for a terrible wage, but also like you don't even have to make a decision about whether your food is ethically made or sourced, you know, like that, that's simply how things are done. Um, and right, so, because then it's not a commodity. Exactly. And so making, I'm, that's my uh, ultimate goal is saying, you know, food should not be a commodity. This shouldn't be a choice for you. Um, it, it, you know, food shouldn't be subject to the whims of capitalism because that's when everything is destroyed and everything's terrible. So, um, I, I would hope that, um, he would understand (laughs) if he read my writing, um, where I'm coming from and that I'm not an uppity Swede. Um, but at the same time, I'm so accustomed to being called that, that it doesn't really phase me anymore. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) But have you like, so has Carl Uva, like, have you taken any inspiration from him? Like saying, I need to be maybe a little more Norwegian about my food writing, (laughs) kind of get more of that earthy populist, like, uh, tone. I, I, you know, I think he has for sure. Um, but, uh, I mean, maybe more my personal writing and like when I'm more personal about it than when I'm more political about it, I definitely am like, I I definitely want to write more like him. I mean, not like, I, you know, I want to write more like, I think he really embodies himself, like his, like he, and I want that, like, I don't want to necessarily write like him. I want to write like me having that same, like kind of hold on my own voice and my own perspective. Um, and so, yeah, I take a lot of inspiration from him in, in personal writing, but it's weird because I think on the internet, it doesn't land. And I think for a lot of the reasons of talking about the reactions to our, our, to my struggle, um, that, uh, we like, also, by the way, we have already been accused of being two NYC lit bros. Okay. So 
so yeah, you get it. But the yeah, like the idea of like the reaction to my struggle in the American press, like being super provincial and super like how yeah. like acting like the books were just this like wacky, um, silly thing um, that were tedious and difficult yeah. and they're not. But I think there's also that reaction, especially on the Internet to writing um, where sure. people really don't people aren't very literate. <laughs> I mean, yeah. now I, now I sound like an uppity Swede, but like, you know, <laughs> people on Twitter were really obsessed with like that line from WandaVision this weekend. Yeah, I don't I know if you it. saw this about like, what is grief if not love persevering or something. And like, everyone was yeah. like, holy shit. So deep, man. Uh, and, like, <laughs> uh, and I'm like, what? Like, has any, like, at first I was like, oh, it's cute. Like everyone's watching the show and they all like this line. That's cute. Like everyone's having a collective moment while we're all, you know, scared of each other. But yeah, at, then I'm like, wow, people really think this is like amazing writing. <laughs> and like, and it's just like, I, how do you compete with like a comic book like adolescent <laughs> not to sound like martin scorsese but like it's all well, no. there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> it's stupid like it's all really really stupid and banal and for children and but adults are taking it in as though it and so i i really think there's a struggle with like that level of literacy that we're dealing with yeah. where i can only be like especially because I'm writing basically just a newsletter all the time. Like in my book, maybe I will be able to, if people are reading it on paper or whatever, maybe they'll have a different reaction to it. Um, But yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's difficult to try and write in a compelling way or be vulnerable and honest and like maybe take people really will interpret all vulnerability and honesty as um, self-righteousness on the internet. And so it's really difficult to write, um, in a way that I think, you know, is more um, nauseating on the internet. It's a paradox. I mean, yeah. it's inherently impossible, right? Yeah, it just yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. But I think what you just touched on is really important, how the internet kind of rewards this kind of aphoristic, fragmentary right. writing and that it's right digestible. You can tweet it. It can get retweeted and go viral, like whatever that... <laughs> That sentence, as you just said. Um, And I think there's this fallacy where in something that is written in an aphoristic style is automatically deemed to be deep on some level. When in fact, it couldn't be, I am putting milk in my tea, semicolon, it is watery. I mean, you could (laughs) could come up with all kinds of examples. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I agree. And I think that it's another, I do think it's, mostly an American tendency, although I'm yes. worrying, I would worry that we're exporting it to like Europe at this point. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I was having a conversation with a, uh, actually a Swedish friend. Um, I don't think he likes Sweden very much though, but um, okay. yeah, where, he, yeah, where he was like, you know, in France, they still, they read and like, that's such a I novel know. thing. Like to say, like, it's a novel thing to have, like, it's a culture where people read. It's like, that's so yeah. crazy now. I don't know. Um, anyway, yeah, it's it's just really, it's difficult to be a writer, um, <laughs> especially when like my bread and butter is the internet and on the internet, you can only go right. so far um, in any way, like for Formally, functionally, politically, like you really have to be so, so, so careful of everything all the time. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of that's the situation to which I are us millennial writers are consigned. I mean, right. it's like there's almost no way to not deal with it. I mean, you can become a teacher at a middling boarding school in Pennsylvania like Drew. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Well, you write your novel about having a twin or so, what? what is it about again? <laughs> 
my so-called novel i don't i don't yeah. even know anymore <laughs> but i was also wondering too because it seems like especially if you're a food writer it seems like people would probably accuse you of being you know like frivolous or bourgeois or whatever and it does seem like kanazgard also offers a way out of that or, i mean he does find a way to write even when i was no i was noticing just now that when he before he even begins preparing each, each dinner he like gives a lot of time just even even to how he acquires the food, you know, right. we see him like in this, in he even, he's careful to say we're not gourmets. I, he only goes to the fancy supermarket because it's, it's closer to him. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he gives, I guess this is just typical. He's rolling his eyes as he picks up a Serrano ham. Bash, yeah. But I, I mean, he almost <laughs> does show us the whole origins and sort of like provenance of this meal. Um, yeah, I guess it just gathers depth via his, you know, attention to these little details. But I was also just trying to deflect from Lauren's accusation that I worked at a middle boarding school. <laughs> Which is yeah. true. But uh, I mean, it does seem like a rejection of this kind of any neat or, um, you know, witty, easy, aphoristic writing style that also that would be like you know i guess totally reducible to some sort of rating of is this food good or bad or what's right. what's the take you know there's no there there's not an easy take from kanazgard's food writing if you could call it that right it's sort of just this this, uh, this is the kind of process and this his meaning that he just generates from it kind of gradually. Um, one of my, like Rachel Cusk, I think also is a, mm. liter- a literary writer who writes about food really, really well. And, and I think also provides that kind of model for how to write about food that isn't like fetishizing food, but is about the, the existence of food in the everyday life. Um, in, her, in her like Italy memoir, like The Last Supper, she writes like so beautifully about food where I'm like, holy shit, like no food writer has ever written this good about food. Like Mm. not even, not even MFK Fisher, whoever we are obsessed with always like it's, but so yeah, it is really interesting how, yeah, other, other types of writers do food writing way better than food writers generally. (laughs) That's fascinating. And I think, yeah, I was actually, that was just what I was about to ask you. Like what other writers come to mind as having written about food or the, rather the experience of food, uh, successfully or, or in a way you admire so rachel kosk is one who i, I admit i've never read drew you've read she's her off, i have not read her but she's often um her name is often thrown out when people discuss kanazgard as well yeah so. yeah autofiction so-called yeah <laughs> so-called no i do think autofiction is a good venue for food writing or that a good sense. method yeah. a good method for sure yeah um but mfk you would put mfk fisher up there uh, no, I mean, yeah, as a, <laughs> she like kind of invented the way that food writers write about food, um, okay. like the Can modern. Yeah, she wrote really like kind of poetically and, and she, you know, it's the kind of fetishization that I'm talking about how literary writers don't do that about food and mm. food writers do. Right. She, ki- okay. she kind of invented that. Um, that sort of fetish fetishizing of food um, and yes. like how it feels on the tongue and blah, blah, blah. like making mm. it Mouth like, feel. yeah, yeah. And so um, she, she really, her influence is still really, really felt in food writing. Like if, if a piece, if like other food writers think a piece of food writing is good, it usually sounds like her. Um, Interesting. I would say, um, but the, People I like reading the most about food right now, like Jonathan Nunn, he's uh, he's actually he's like now he actually focuses on food. He edits the Vittles newsletter from London and he wrote he wrote a piece for The Economist about a time like recently in the pandemic where he did like food deliveries for apps. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And so like, I thought that was actually good food writing. <laughs> um, uh, no one really gets, gets dirty as, in food writing. I think that's the problem. Um, right. But, but yeah, people, people are doing it more now, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. And now I'm trying to think of novelists who have written about food in a way that particularly inspired me. Right. There must be some, do any come to mind, Drew? You know, it's weird. I was just thinking that although we like to make a big deal about vivid details and, you know, sensory details in writing that it's hard to think about food in, in, in the texture of novels, although it's certainly there, yeah. but it seems to, it seems to either become almost, yeah, fetishistic or a kind of source of like exaggerated meaning, um, you know, when a writer devotes like kind of like a rhapsodic passage to food or maybe a disgusting one. But then and then on the other hand, it's almost like not there at all. And characters seem kind of disembodied and weird. And you forget that there are people who, you know, eat and shit and do all the things. Yeah, that I want to hear about life. characters meals. Generally in a book, I want to hear about their meals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always like I always like it when the author includes what they're having for lunch or dinner. It makes them so more relatable it, to me. It is odd that we don't we don't think of, of food as being a kind of essential ingredient of novel writing. Um, but I guess I guess that is another way that autofiction can helpfully kind of ground writing in in everyday life. You know, every, like I, I I suppose Kanazgar just almost is obligated to uh, give us a portrayal of everything he eats and right. how he goes about you know procuring it and then making it even if it's not loaded with an obvious significance. Um, yeah, I'm trying to. Yeah, because I feel like food is usually just a stand-in for some kind of virtue or something in novels that I've read. I'm trying to think of things I've read recently. I know in Le Carre, the spy who came from in the cold, he goes across, he's in East Germany, and while he's in custody, they have, I think he describes it as rank white wine, um, <laughs> but that's obviously like, like a stand-in for the, you know, kind of disgustingness of, um, of the East German state. So right. I feel like, frankly, yeah, we just have these kind of glancing descriptions of food. Yeah, I mean, food often seems to either have this like annoying symbolic power or else it's merely like gesturing at a sociological right. Uh, right. fact or motive, um, which I guess Kenazgar does use it for those reasons at the times. But it, like everything else in his books, it somehow seems to sort of just exist naturally and just sort of you know be part right. of the textures of his everyday life which Although is how he, food is in our in life yeah right i Absolutely. almost want to compare it to um i'm going to do a millennials are like sweeping generalization right now but i would have noticed a lot of my millennial friends like they don't really like cook on or as i understand they don't cook on a daily basis but then they'll make like some elaborate meal or viral recipe to like put on instagram or like right something overly elaborate like making their own bread or like their own um something from scratch or fermentation and it's almost like uh, i the relating to capitalism is too obvious but it's almost like you ha it has to be this vast labor rather than this kind of everyday mm -hmm. right um do you think that's fair i don't know i I think that's very fair and very true. And I, I think it's kind of encouraged. But I also what I think is interesting is there's that this aspect of it, like people being like, you know, I hate this word, but like foodies who only do elaborate mm -hmm. projects and only yeah. go to like the most authentic or like cool restaurants. And and then there's this other vibe of like, <laughs> like now with the TikTok food videos, that's like oh. so 
so opposite of that. Like interesting. Mm-hmm. But they're all, I'm like, not in that subculture. I heard least, about the TikTok pasta or something. Right, right. Like there's this pasta everyone's making. So many people are making it that like my friend who works at the Washington Post food section wrote about it, like had to make it and write about it because it's been so popular. And like huh. it's funny because I mean, with the exception of maybe like Alison Roman, I don't know if you know of her, but she. Of course, I make her uh, canceled stew all the time. Right. So like, which is actually a curry, right? But the, the, there's like her, her vibe, like she really was a hit with people in this way. And now like also these really kind of gross, I would say cooking techniques from, (laughs) from TikTok are becoming a thing. And like, now it seems like people are trying, like outgross each other there's been some interesting ones i guess like there was a quesadilla where you like cut three slits in a tortilla and like put okay. stuff in different corners and like folded it up and like it was like i don't know it was like looked like something from taco bell i don't know and then there's this tiktok pasta where like you you bake a whole block of feta with a bunch of cherry tomatoes um and then you stir it yeah. in a pasta and um so, like yeah and so and this is like very very this is all like life hacky type stuff. It's not. Yes. I don't yeah. Like that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's not about food as a project or food as like a, a symbol of your cr- cultural credibility or whatever. It's about like more the stuff you would associate with like Rachel Ray's 30 minute meals. Like, so <laughs> it's very, it's a like really weird, like going back, but maybe this is how a lot of people have also always cooked, you know, like for me, it's interesting as a food writer because I have, I'm like, is this how most people cook and eat? And is this how they want to eat? <laughs> Where it, you know, it's like, it's more about the hacks than it is about the like experience of cooking or like, you know, doing things with ingredients that are more, you know, about the ingredients themselves. And I don't, you know, it's interesting. Cause I, yeah, I think there's been this kind of like swing backwards from, from the sourdough to like 30 minute meals, which is interesting. interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just feel like you don't hear about people at least my age just like just doing ordinary meals with stuff they have in the pantry. Right. Like, oh, or is that just something people don't post online? Like, or, yeah, or is it we just don't know about it? Yeah. yeah. I don't. Yeah, that's a good point. What it, all these kind of humble to mediocre meals are just being sequestered away. <laughs> there should be an Instagram account devoted to just, you know, completely middling pantry sourced meals. <laughs> Right. To just tell us about grabbing a bag of potatoes, some tomatoes, broccoli, and mushrooms on page 101 of book two. He also, I just know, he also notices that they have an ice cream that they had just started stocking. Okay. You know, which which sounds like a random detail, but it is the kind of little noticing that you might just experience one day. You just, oh yeah, that's the new kind of ice cream they have. (laughs) But it's not. Does he tell us what type of ice cream it is? He, I don't, I don't think he does. He just, no, that's how it's sort of just in his, you know, mind as he's shopping. He just says he selected the vanilla ice cream with the little label. That's all you always told. With the little label, they had just started talking. With the little label. But he doesn't describe the label. It's just, it's, it's really like he's just taking a quick inventory as he strolls uh, the aisles here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's that's why I love the way he writes about food, because it's just so matter of fact. And I think that we're really lacking in the matter of factness of food. Like what you said, like people people only show the grand things that they've made. And I actually have started to like post very boring things I've made like on Instagram because people 
I just followed you on Instagram. Okay, because people are like, they don't know how to like make a vegetarian or vegan meal or something, or they like, people are very like um, burnt out on cooking because it's a pandemic. And so they've been cooking so much. Um, And so it actually is helpful to people to see that like, oh, you, I just like sauteed some mushrooms and and arugula together. And, (laughs) and, and that like to someone else, that'll spark like a whole meal they can make. And so I've really gotten past the idea that I only have to post like the like more difficult stuff that I've made because like people follow me for food. And so it makes more sense for me to like be more matter of fact about it and not just me like only post like the, the grand things that I've made for sure. I love that. Yeah. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go do a deep dive on your Instagram for <laughs> the ideas. Yeah. But I want, yeah, I need, I want more content like that. Yeah. This, no, I don't want to see heroic, you know, meals just yeah. Run of the mill. Drew, you kind of are, no, Drew, you cook normal stuff also. Yeah, I'm pretty grim and normal. Yeah. He's been know. really into canned fish lately. Yeah, canned fish is, is where it's at. It's beautiful. That's Everyone's partly... been into it, yeah. Oh, no, and then I got to stop. Uh, I'm not... no, <laughs> no, anchovies and sardines are, like, super trendy right now. Um, are they really? Yeah. Why? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't eat Was fish. So... <laughs> it might be. It might be the, <laughs> the Nordic thing. Um, yeah. No, I think it's just people... Um, yeah just being into preserved things and now there's like hip brands of it mm-hmm. oh. so people are into that i think last week like the uh, one company that's making canned fish sent a bunch of samples to all the food writers they were all posting it on oh, wow. on instagram yeah. it's like getting a galley coffee but it's sardine <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly i'd rather have a sardines than a galley so you can eat sardines you can't eat a galley yeah. <laughs> Am I right about that? Um, uh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So I want to, I guess this, I don't know, vaguely leads us into um, that other passage I wanted to talk about, which was really fascinating to me. This is the one from book two, page 79, that I think in just a paragraph, he kind of touched on nostalgia, which is something you talk about in your peanut butter essay. Right. Um, as well as nationalism uh, and some classism. So I'm going to read this because it's really, it's jam-packed with all kinds of themes. Um, This was food. So this is when Knausgaard is in the fancy supermarket um, in Stockholm, which he he notes to us, to which he is completely indifferent. And the only reason he goes is because it's near his house. Um, And I think, I believe he picks up Serrano ham, fresh pasta, basil, and maybe some tomatoes or something. So he says, this was food I had never dreamed of buying in my former life because I had no idea it existed. But now I was here in the midst of Stockholm's cultural middle classes. And even though this pandering to all things Italian, Spanish, French, and the the repudiation of all things Swedish appeared stupid to me. And gradually as the bigger picture emerged, also repugnant, it wasn't worth wasting my energy on. When I missed pork chops and cabbage, beef stew, vegetable soup, dumplings, meatballs, lung mash, fish cakes, mutton and vegetables, smoked sausage ring, whale steaks, sago pudding, semolina, rice pudding, and Norwegian porridge. It was <laughs> as much the 70s I was missing as the actual tastes. Right. <laughs> There's just so much there. Yeah. I mean, I think this is this is the closest he gets to being like 
a food writer, <laughs> like writing the way a food writer writes of being like, yeah. oh, when I miss this, because I've written a line like this too before where it's like, oh, when I'm, when I miss this flavor, I really just miss this time in my life. Like that's such a kind of okay. cliche of food. Uh, but yeah. I mean, he's doing a really good job of it. Like he's doing a good one, you know, where he's really evoking the differences between modern Stockholm food and um, the the Norwegian food of his youth. Like there's this really great contrast, I think, here with that. Oh, yeah. And, and I Just think it's the all- inventory. It's a classic right. Asgardian inventory. I think yes. he names maybe at least 10 things. Yes. And it's interesting yeah. because you don't think he really enjoyed his childhood. Um, exactly. Yeah. So- he's miserable eating those yeah. sardines. <laughs> and so it's really interesting that I mean, and I think this just kind of speaks to, you know, the veracity of his of his work here is just that like even everyone knows like pastimes in their life weren't ideal, but you can still miss them, especially when you're not happy in your current situation. And so I think it's it's just a really accurate description of what it can be like to be frustrated about where you are in your life and and missing things that you wouldn't ordinarily miss. Um, but I do. I really, really love this passage because, yeah, it's it's just it's very classic him, but it's also very classic kind of food writing. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like you get, in, you get into a fight with Linda and you think, oh, I just wish I could have a whale steak right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden you're like, oh, I need a smoked sausage ring. Look <laughs> the Serrano ham. This is this is not native. It's just what what a list. Lung mash. What is lung mash? No is idea. Just, I'm going to look up a picture of lung mash. Oof. Alicia on our last episode we looked up pictures of shrimp and aspic do you know what that is yeah oh I know what that is yeah yeah um what's your what are your impressions of shrimp and aspic it's like a jello right yeah Yeah, like aspic is like made from the gelatin yeah of the of the yeah no I know yeah I knew exactly what that was just because like I've seen a lot of 70s cookbooks but um yeah but I I've never eaten that and I wouldn't obviously um and I hope never to be presented with it. <laughs> um, I, I guess so I could too. make a vegan one. That might be a funny thing to do is that to make a, a vegan aspect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, lung mash. Gee. Okay. It's basically the Swedish word for uh, awful. Right. So it's various organs um, just mashed together. I guess it's similar to haggis. Right. Another mm-hmm. famously detestable food. Yeah, I think Scotland has got to be up there with the Nords of having a lot of really unappetizing dishes. Yeah. No offense to them. <laughs> no, <it's just laughs> Scottish Scott. listeners we have. <laughs> I was once served like a, a vegan mutton in okay. Scotland. That was interesting. It was lots of nuts. A vegan mutton. Yeah. Like whatever. What's their what's sorry, the haggis, the haggis, haggis. The, yeah. that's usually made from mutton, which is an animal. Right. Um, but yeah, the the haggis, they served me a vegan one. It, it was just mostly like a big mound of nuts mashed together. OK, um, how did so, it taste? Fine, like nuts, um, you know, <laughs> but it was not. an interesting attempt for sure. Drew, Drew's triggered right now. We both have pretty severe nut allergies. Oh, and, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can so. never yeah, eat that. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're very triggered by the recent trend of nut cheeses because we of- feel like it's just waiting to to take us out yeah it's really terrifying i wrote a huge piece that's coming out soon for eater about vegan cheese that's mostly about nut cheese yeah are you pro or anti-nut cheese i'm pro um because i'm i mean i don't have a nut allergy so obviously that's 
starting from that. Um, and then I, um, I am pretty much lactose intolerant in addition to mm. not enjoying industrial dairy, um, mm -hmm. how that, how that's made. And so, um, for me, it's nice. Like when we have, you know, friends over and like bring out a cheese board, like I can eat local goat cheese cause it doesn't have the same stuff as cow cheese, but, um, mm -hmm. I, I like to have, you know, a little like Miyoko's cashew cheese that I can put on a cracker with some jam and feel like a part of the party. Um, but right. so for me, it's nice. And a lot of them are bad, but like some of them are very good. So, I mean, and it's only getting more interesting, but I apologize that it's going to be hell for you guys with your nut allergies for sure. Like people will probably put, you'll probably be at a party in the future. I know that's you, what I'm worried about. And yeah, like, at a cocktail party. Exactly. And someone's going to put a nut cheese and not tell. <laughs> You. yeah <laughs> duplicitous nut cheese it's yeah. really tough out there what's the what's the worst nut cheese that you tried and what's the best one or is that is that spoiling the eater article? oh no no this, it's not I like about he's coming out an eater next week actually oh cool i don't i don't know when mine's coming out because it's being fact checked um and I, I i my fact checker might not like me i don't know i responded to the first <laughs> query I, where i was she asked me like if i could like vote like take photos from a pdf and i was like you know i was really just summing up the information so i was like can you tell me exactly what and now i haven't heard from her since so i was like oh no i pissed off my fact checker um i have also pissed off fact checkers yeah i mean i was just i didn't really know how to how to answer the, the query but um yeah, no. So I really like Miyoko's. I really like Treeline Cheese, which is made in New York. Um, I Kite Hill is okay. It's weird. It's made with almond milk instead and not cashew milk. And I think that mm -hmm. it's and weird. is cashew the preferred nut for nut cashew cheese? is the preferred one because it has okay. the right fat content and a very mild flavor ah, that you can. Okay. And I like Dr. Cow cream cheese, maybe the most. That's like a raw um, cashew cream cheese um, that's okay. made in Brooklyn. Um, they used to have a, I don't know if they still have a teeny, teeny, tiny storefront um, by like in Williamsburg, like in that weird section of Broadway where you, you see the bridge, like, <laughs> I don't know if you know, like by Motorino anyway, but um, they used to have a spot there. And so that's definitely my favorite. I hate, and these aren't nut cheeses. The cheeses I really hate are like, the diet cheese um that yeah. doesn't like melt normal and like um what is it made out of it's just like lots of oils and and um flavors just pressed together so it, it's not the new the nut cheeses are actually made like um real cheese you know it, they basically just make milk from the cashews and then culture it and age it okay. the same way yeah so you get a uh, little bit of that that funky it's funky yeah it's still funky okay. yeah and it tastes pretty good. Would you ever mistake it for for milk cheese? Probably. I mean, we're just asking because we'll never taste it. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you might. I mean, I've heard there's really more interesting ones that I've seen that I haven't tried. Um, I'm actually not allergic to almonds, so I could have an almond based. Oh, so you could have the Kite Hill. And then yeah. there's Riverdale is like in Essex Market and they sell like... Okay. They sell like cheese, vegan cheese, like it's real cheese. Like it's in you, you weigh it, they weigh it for you. Okay. And and yeah. Nice. Yeah. And so they're made they're, They sell a lot of more, the more interesting ones. And then there's a, a brand called Rind that I think is in Brooklyn that also, it really looks like real cheese. So there is some stuff out there that you might get confused by. <laughs> for okay, sure. I'm going to be, this is good. Now, now we're raising our alert and, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm gonna be on high alert. I like high alert. Sort of We're on high alert. Disingenuous right? nut cheeses out there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I get. I'm happy that they can mimic cheese, but 
you know, right. cashews are, I think cashews are the most lethal nut for me. One of the most lethal nuts out wow. there. Second to peanuts, I would imagine. No, peanuts are actually pretty low on the list. Still really? lethal, but lower in, in virulence. I think. I, I never uh, knew that about you. Yeah, you learn new things every day. <laughs> I've never had a cashew, actually. I know, but I think I'm pretty sure I'm allergic. Walnuts and peanuts, definitely. Wow. Oh, walnuts are tough. Yeah. Walnuts. Oh, oh. <laughs> thank you the way it makes my mouth feel but i respect that walnuts are you know an, an important flavor for many um peoples and cultures <laughs> and i will not take that away from them should peanut butter be banned maybe i mean i almost think your peanut butter article didn't go far enough you know why not just you know get rid of the whole industry make <laughs> the world a little safer i actually wish i wish i could eat peanut butter i feel like it's something i'd really appreciate i i'm sad that i can't eat it i have to make almond i have to make peanut butter sandwiches all the time for the kids i babysit and it's very very dicey for me yeah yeah the the smell is like tough yeah it really oh it's traumatic don't don't do that (laughs) but okay too i want to get back to this point about food and nostalgia um alicia in in that article your infamous you know i don't think infamous article since it's actually (laughs) pretty well received on natural peanut butter um you pointed out kind of the nostalgic value of these uh, super hydrogenated, non-stir right. versions of peanut butter and um, how they relate to people's memories and um, childhood, especially. Um, so I wonder, like, I guess how legit do you find claims of nostalgia as like a justification? A justification? Yeah. yeah. In general. Um, I don't find it that compelling. I think you <laughs> I think people should get over it. Um I mean, and that's me speaking like on a personal, I'd never write that down. I'd never write in a piece yeah. like, hey, get over it. Um, <laughs> but I think I that, can leave that out if you want. No, it's, I mean, I think it's funny, but I it, it's like it, it just is a really bad justification for continuing um, to, uh, you know, give money to terrible corporations. Um, and I think sure. that that's not it's not a valid reason for that. I mean, it's a valid impulse. But it's sure. not like it's not a, a justification for continuing the destruction of the planet. You know, like people will be like, well, you know, I grew up eating uh, hamburgers from McDonald's. And it's like, well, you're an adult now. And so maybe, <laughs> maybe you Girl. should stop. Like, um, you know, if you have the means and you have the ability to say, like, this is a mm-hmm. destructive product and this is a destructive company to say, you know, I don't need to eat that. Like, I think that that's, you know, that's a very simple way to do your part in, in trying to, um, you know, fix things a little bit, just, you know, a little bit, it has very, it's not that powerful, but like, you know, at least it's something. Sure. Yeah. I feel like also millennials, I don't know why I'm like fixating on this today, but they have like a certain, like maybe every generation has done this, but they have a certain like over nostalgic or like fetishistic impulse the foods of their childhood and there's always right. like and now you see these like insane like videos or like life hack things about like how to create um fruit loops with uh you, you know what i mean like right. just like weird oh like we're like uh, reverse engineer like oh like products. make a pop tart with uh, yeah like make an oreo yeah. how to make an oreo or something yeah yeah um, no, yeah. they, they like gourmet make series on Bon Appetit um, yes, before yes. before they all got canceled. Yeah, it's um, 
the right. yeah it's very weird to me that impulse um you know like i'm never like super nostalgic to like eat a gusher um even though <laughs> i ate, ate. Gross. i see the kids i babysit eat those sometimes and i'm <laughs> mom bar yeah I so, eat those when i was a kid oh, i was like yeah no, <laughs> like them a lot as a kid you but know, like i don't yeah i don't know for me it's like not nostalgia isn't a great impulse like a big impulse for me when it comes to food um like sometimes it's interesting if you taste something and it tastes like something you used to eat when you were a kid and it's like oh that's interesting but it's like that's yeah. it like you know um it's a useful it's a useful thing to write about the way nosgard does um you know to you know it, it, yeah, it's an interesting thing to document, but it's not like for me, it, it's not a motivating thing about how to eat nostalgia. I think I think it's more a dangerous impulse than anything else to be driven. Yeah, and by. it's also probably related to like a lot of I mean, you could get you could really spin this out like just to, like conditions of like, you know, like capitalism and like millennial life and how everyone's pretty fucking miserable yeah. um, uh, in their, you know, overworked jobs or working for some awful tech company. Um I think nostalgia is like a pretty, is a pretty common opiate to, um, right. To make resort to, um, this yeah. is certainly true in China. Oh my God, because people are fucking miserable once they get these jobs where they're working until 10 PM and they start fetishizing their youth at which they studied for the college entrance exam until 10 PM every night. And it was fucking <laughs> awful, but like, it's better than like this lonely, you know, existence where you live in a far suburb of Beijing and commute for you know, four hours a day. Right. Um, yeah. So I guess there's all kinds of factors in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a big one. I think generally is it's tied to, like nostalgia drives an impulse to one of that, like freedom that you had when you were yeah. a child. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. What do you think of like things like, like not kind of corporate food, but things like, for example, Knausgaard's mothers, what are they like sheep ribs or right. smoked sheep ribs? Like what about super like old school, like homemade stuff like that? I think that's awesome. I think that's something people should be nostalgic for. And I, but that also gets dangerous and fetish fetishy. Um, right. Of course, like that was kind of the driving force of the new Nordic cuisine, um, mm-hmm. which w- was that like really going, going back to, you know, the grandmother way of cooking or great grandma or whatever. But um, I think that that's obviously a way better impulse. Like it's a way better impulse to like, want to make your own bread than to want to, um, eat fast food, you know, like that, that's a, that's a, just a, uh, a, a more that's, it's a nostalgia that like is not destructive, you know, um, yeah. in, in the same way. So I totally understand that kind of nostalgia. Like I don't eat meat anymore, but like when I was a kid, I loved eating lamb chops. And so like, mm-hmm, delicious. Yeah. yeah, that would be the kind of nostalgia that would drive my food. But, you know, I mean, everyone has a different food life. And so that's why it's it's so difficult to talk about it because it just gets so dicey about class and, and race and geography and everything and like access and, and that sort of stuff. So it's like, of course, you know, I shouldn't say that a McDonald's burger is always a bad thing, but at the same yeah. time, I think that never saying that it's a bad thing because you don't want to offend anybody, like allows the perpetuation of like really evil sure. systems. Um, in yeah, food. And so, so it's a, it's a really complicated, you know, thing to, to dissect the, the, the role of nostalgia. Interesting. I am. Um, what is it? Oh, I just. I have a question about intestines. Are those like okay. how do vegans feel about intestines? I mean, because I think are they going to get thrown out otherwise. Right. I mean, if you're going to eat meat, you should eat the whole thing. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. For me, it's like, oh, if you're going to eat meat, then like, sure, you should be comfortable murdering a chicken or or a pig or whatever like yeah. that. That you should be okay with that if you're okay with eating it. Like that's very me. 
that's my perspective, you know? And yeah. I mean, that would mean, that would mean people eat less meat. And then that's kind of the goal. <laughs> so much if, nostalgic food is just, I, that's why I'm asking you, it's kind of yeah. space in so many right. cultures, like, yeah. you know, tutorlings and Chinese people eat a ton of intestine. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a, uh, it, in a lot of cases, it comes out of poverty. It comes out right. of like having mm. the, having to use the entire animal, which is good. Like that's how people eat meat. If you're going to yeah. eat meat, is is eat the whole thing. Um, I think it's the alienation from all of that process that drives people to eat so much meat. Um, right, which is yeah. dangerous. Yeah, it's it's better to have that kind of a relationship with food, obviously, than to have like the modern like I I have never looked at a cow and I just. The, you know, yeah. the flesh of it is just meat to me. It's nothing more than that. Like, I think, I think it's important that people understand it's more than that. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> might, might whip up some lung mash later. <laughs> it's like his, uh, his Madeline moments, lung mash. Lung mash. <laughs> yes. Lung mash moments. Although I, I was a nice like, lung mash with a side of whale steak. Yeah. I would, I would like to try whale steak. I'm, I am very curious about that. My uh, my roommate lived in Alaska for a while, and he said that uh, they would eat walrus steaks there, and they were really disgusting. Right. Walrus. Yeah, I think it was walrus. Maybe it was whale. I don't know. Do they have walruses in Alaska? I think so. Hmm. <laughs> um, well, Alicia, have you, like, since, you know, getting into all this stuff, have you attempted your own kind of Nordic dishes? I haven't at all. I um maybe I will get like a cookbook that kind of explains it, but it is interesting because I do like when I like uh novels from a certain area, I do buy the cookbooks. Like I oh, I really, really yeah, there's a Moldovan so there's a Moldovan writer that I really love um named Ulian Jokan oh. and his um his first the first of his novels to be translated into English just came out last May. And it, really? I also ended up ordering like a Romanian cookbook so that I could kind of oh, understand. Wow. Like, so for, it is like trying to understand, I think when with Knozgard, it's like the food is, is there. It's so present that I don't have to go looking for something sure. to like yeah. educate me on it. But I actually, you know, having this conversation, I think I definitely, that'll be the next cookbook I order will be like a Norwegian cookbook. <laughs> I mean, awesome. at my, in my family, we make uh, for Christmas this almond uh, cookie Christmas tree called Kransnakaka, which is Norwegian. Ooh. Like we're oh. not Norwegian, but like my grandma yeah. like read the recipe one day, like 40 years ago. And now every year Aww. we make this Kransnakaka. And so it's, it's interesting to find out that like, I do have a Norwegian tradition in my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We probably all have latent Norwegian connection. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. What was like? What was what were the Romanian dishes in there? Like, what was your favorite? Uh, I didn't cook any of them. That's like I don't really cook from cookbooks. I use them as oh, right. like okay. as a as a, a a knowledge tool. You know, sure. like a ref a reference text rather than really a cookbook. Like, if I want to make something like really. Uh, like I'll tell you the the cookbook I mostly open to actually cook from is called just Mexico it's like the okay. fade in like gigantic home on oh, Mexican cuisine yeah it's pink and I got that for like, my mom yeah we have that yeah, yeah. And so I use like that I open that because I want to like make things correctly but like most of the time I'm just like flying by the seat of my pants um right. with in the kitchen so <laughs> what but like what kind of stuff do they eat in Romania I just like can't even it's very it's it's a it's you know more meditative it's more like Latin ish than Russian food, but it's really like pretty close to Russian, food, but like with other 
there's other flair to it. It's not just straight up Russian. Yeah. But it has a lot in common with other like Eastern European cuisines and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. What you were saying is how the food is kind of, yeah, it's, it's shows up on the page in Kanausgard, but well, in others, it's, it's kind of implicit. Right. Like, I just want, I want to know, like, what were people in Jane Austen eating? Like, (laughs) I, I need to know, like, what were historical figures eating? It just makes them so much more relatable to me if I knew what they were having for dinner. Yeah. Um, Because, like, and also, like, it was probably pretty gnarly. um, (laughs) 19th century food in England. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's something of great curiosity to me. Right. (sighs) So, uh, Drew, you have any, I mean, I think we pretty much covered, I mean, is there anything you want to bring up, Alicia, or, you know, other things that specifically stuck out to you about the novels or... No, I think this, we really hit on all the, the yeah. stuff, I think. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. No, I, I, I've been trying to find some way to bring in, you know, uh, Proust's eating of the Madeleine and how it triggers a right. kind of memory uh, feast or reverie, but I can't think of an intelligent way to do it. I just, I mean, it's interesting that in, in, we don't, that's sort of a moment where, you know, the food's kind of like swells into this moment of high significance and, and memory, but in Kanazgard, it seems just more organically patterned into the texture of everyday life. So I think, like, even when he's thinking about his nostalgic relationship to food, it just sort of happens, um, you know, glancingly almost. Um, there's not like what an, you know, an apex of food memories, but uh, yeah. So, and also, I, I guess it's helped along by his the fact that we often see him. In, in you know in supermarkets so that right. that helps because there you can't help but be kind of overwhelmed by by certain food images and, and products and things like mm-hmm. that also the image of Kanausgard in a supermarket is very funny to me it's I know so I funny. love it <laughs> so funny this man is six and a half feet tall <laughs> which yeah. I know probably doesn't stand out as much in Stockholm but still right. like just him with the two kids in a stroller just kind of grimly pushing through the <laughs> <laughs> the quinoa aisle at the supermarket <laughs> dismissively <laughs> like grumbling a lot oh, fuck that quinoa <laughs> i also like he really gets in a dig at those mediterranean cuisines right yeah i know worship of all things spanish french and italian <laughs> i feel like wasn't that kind of an aughts thing like in the 2000s i feel like that kind of food was kind of in, was in more so than it is now right like, the mediterranean diet yeah, yeah. Was, was the like main fancy thing Um, Also an extremely odd moment, he reveals that the lobster recipe comes from Jamie Oliver's cookbook. Really? Ah, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is Jamie Oliver, did he get canceled or do we just not hear about him? We just don't really, they talk about him a lot in the UK. He's still relevant there. He's still relevant. Yeah. Interesting. It's just so basic that he's cooking Jamie Oliver. That actually is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, someone asked him at the dinner party. This is the New Year's Eve. Right. New Year's Eve lobster. Um, he says, yeah, I found it in Jamie Oliver's cookbook. I know, yeah, him sitting down at a table opening up Jamie Oliver's cookbook <laughs> is such a fascinating <laughs> vision. Um, yeah. <laughs> Just dog-earing pages. <laughs> <laughs>